Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 5 through 17 this morning as we continue our studies in the life of Christ. Currently in looking at the Sermon on the Mount. And this morning's message is entitled, No Comparison. And that's because there is no comparison between the Pharisees and the scribes and Jesus. There's no comparison between what the scribes and the Pharisees taught and what Jesus taught. And there was no comparison between the scribes and the Pharisees and the way they lived and the way Jesus lived. Because they were so, there was such a contrast uh, between those things as well as many other things. And that's what Jesus is going to bring out before them today uh, in this section of Scripture. God's moral and ceremonial laws were given to help people love God with every fiber of their being, with all of their hearts, with all of their minds, and all of their strength. But all through Israel's history, these laws had been misquoted, misunderstood, and misinterpreted. You see, one of Satan's tactics is to make God's word misquoted, misunderstood, or misinterpreted. Because you see, if he can disarm you from the word of God, you are defenseless. You have nothing to defend yourself. And so, again, it's, it's, a, it's a favorite. Uh, we look at Matthew chapter 4, verses 5 through 6, when Jesus, it says, was led by the Holy Spirit into the uh, wilderness to be tempted. We see that Satan took him to the highest point of the temple. And Satan said to Jesus, if you're the son of God, jump off. Because the Bible says, now notice, Satan uses the Bible. Satan, unfortunately, knows the Bible better than a lot of Christians do. But Satan uses the scriptures against us. And he said to Jesus, well, he will order his angels to protect you, Jesus. And they will hold you up with their hands so that you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Satan very clearly, though, left out part of that verse. When you go back to Psalm 91 and you read it, he severely misquoted the scripture. He left out, like he does, the most important words. He left out, in all your ways. That is, quoting it from Psalm 91. When the child of God is in the will of God, that is, doing the will of God, then the Father will protect them. And he'll watch over those who are in his ways. But when we're not in his ways, when we're not in the will of God and we're doing our own thing, we're, under, we're no longer under his protection. So again, Satan very cleverly and purposely misquoted the scripture. So by Jesus's time, the religious leaders, that is the scribes and the Pharisees, they had taken these laws and they had turned them <clears throat> into a confusing bunch of do's and don'ts. And when Jesus talked about a new way to understand God's law, what he was trying to do was bring people back to its original purpose and meaning, getting back to the basics. Jesus didn't speak against the law. Jesus was not against the law itself, but he was against the abuses and the extremes and the liberties that the scribes and the Pharisees took with it. So the subject of this part of the Sermon on the Mount, which covers verses 17 through 48, but we're going to look at 17 through 20 this morning. This is the huge difference between what Jesus taught and what the scribes and the Pharisees taught. Again, which were the religious leaders. 
And the words here in verse 17 says, you have heard, but I say to you, these words are the introduction to these contrasts and shows the differences in the master. And that is what people thought of his ministry and message compared to what his ministry and his message really was. The people had, had, they had a lot of mistaken ideas about Jesus's purpose. What they thought Jesus's purpose was. And it was totally different than what his mission truly was. So Jesus introduces this section of contrast by dealing with this problem of misconception that the people had so that he, that he came to minister to. They're the ones that Jesus came to minister to. So in dealing with this problem, the first thing Jesus does is discuss the deviant view the people had of his mission, and he disproved it. And then he gives the proper purpose for what his mission was here on earth, which was totally different than what the people thought that it was. Many people today are still confused about what Jesus' mission was and is. So let's begin now with chapter 5, verse 17. And Jesus says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. So Jesus said that, he said to the people, Don't believe the Pharisees and the scribes when they tell you that I came to abolish the law, that I came to do away with the law. He said, I didn't come to, to abolish it. I came to fulfill it. I didn't come to destroy it. I came to fulfill it. The word fill, fulfill means to fill out, to expand, or complete. So Jesus is saying, hey, I came to complete the law. It doesn't mean to bring it to an end. Jesus fulfills or completes the law in many ways. Jesus obeyed the law perfectly, and he taught the correct meaning of it. And one day he's going to fulfill, he's going to complete all of the Old Testament types and prophecies. And Jesus provides a way of salvation that meets all the requirements of the law. The Jews were almost unanimously expecting an earthly Messiah. So when Jesus appeared in such humble circumstances, and he taught doctrines so totally opposite of what they expected, well, the people naturally thought, well, Jesus was either a phony who deceived them, or he had come to sabotage and destroy everything that their forefathers had taught them. And the people lived, or they used two principles. The people used two principles for guiding their life that they respected and lived by. One was the law. The law as it was interpreted by the scribes as the instruction for their life. And the other was the scribes and Pharisees' life of holy behavior. So again, the two things that they lived by that guided their life was the law as interpreted by the Pharisees and the scribes and their life. The scribes and the Pharisees' lives were their model for their behavior. You see, they thought because Jesus opposed some of the teachings of the scribes and Pharisees that Jesus was opposed to the law. And they thought because Jesus didn't abide by the traditions in his behavior that Jesus was unholy. Now, what they didn't pick up on was that the doctrines and the traditions that the religious leaders taught were often not in agreement with the scriptures. The fact that the traditions contradicted the scriptures was confirmed later on by Jesus when he said to the religious leaders, why do you, by your traditions, violate the direct commandments of God? 
So when Jesus saw this wrong idea about his mission, he clearly said, look, you guys, I didn't come to do away with the law and the prophets, which was a common name at that time for the Old Testament, which was all that the scripture was made up of at that time. Jesus was not opposed to the word of God. What he was opposed to was the traditions taught by the religious leaders and the false teaching. This is what he came to fix. You see, these were man-made traditions and they weren't in agreement with the scriptures. So Jesus often opposed them, but he never opposed the word. Jesus said, I did not come to destroy the law or the prophets. I came to fulfill them. I, take, I came to complete them. And it didn't take long to see that Jesus didn't fit the common character of the religious leaders. Jesus clearly had a deep respect for the law. But at the same time, he taught things that were totally contrary to the traditions that the scribes and Pharisees taught. Jesus' teachings didn't lower scriptural standards, but supported them in every single way. Jesus not only put God's standards at the top where they belonged, but he lived at the humanly impossible uh, level. Christ's purpose on earth was to fulfill, to complete the word of God. And Jesus did that. He fulfilled it in two ways. He fulfilled it in his behavior and he fulfilled it in his calling. His great attentiveness to the word of God to fulfill it in every detail urges us to do the same thing. Jesus fulfilled the word of God from beginning to end. And, you know, we are to do the same thing. That hasn't ever changed. We don't get to pick and choose the parts of scriptures that we want to do, that we want to obey, that we want to believe. From Genesis to Revelation, we are to believe every bit of Scripture. There is no picking and choosing. So then again, so this is how Jesus fulfilled his, uh, his, his calling, uh, com- completed it in two ways. Again, in his behavior, uh, I'm sorry, in, in uh, attentive to the Word of God in every detail. The Word must be what guides our every word, our every thought, and every action. This is very much lacking in the lives of a lot of Christians today. Let the word of God be in their life, allowing it to guide their life. But understand, it's the only guide that can be trusted. Jesus obeyed the word of God totally in his life. The psalmist said in 40, verse 7 and 8, Behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. So again, Psalm 40 was a prophecy of Christ. And in that passage, that was Christ speaking. Behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is in my heart. Nobody could accuse Jesus of breaking the law. Jesus had lived the law in perfect obedience. Every word and every action. Even under, under trial, remember by Pilate? He came out and he said, look, I find no fault in him. Nobody could then, nobody could today. His perfect obedience showed the sinlessness of his life. And that's what qualified Jesus to be the savior of the world. You don't receive salvation by ignoring the law about his punishment. It's received by substitution. 
Jesus was our substitution and he died for our sins. But in order to die for man's sins, Jesus had to be sinless or else he would have had to die for his own sins. But Jesus fulfilled the word of God by absolute and perfect obedience to it. And this is what qualified him to be our redeemer. Paul said in Philippians 2.8, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Jesus fulfilled, completed every prophecy written about his purpose, showing the trustworthiness of the word of God. Jesus was so committed to filling these prophecies that were written about him, he took time, even in the midst of his agony and his suffering on the cross, to recite two words in order for Scripture to be fulfilled. I thirst. John 19, 28 and Psalm 69, 21. Every word that was written about him in the Old Testament came to pass. Otherwise, We couldn't trust the worthiness of the Bible or the inerrancy of the Bible. Fulfilling all the prophecies about Jesus' coming and calling meant that he was also qualified to be our Savior, our Redeemer. Plus, Jesus fulfilled every prophecy in connection with his mission, showing that he was the only one qualified to be the Messiah of Israel. Now, if the Jews had studied and known their scripture they would have known that Jesus was the Messiah. Four times in the Gospel of Matthew and one time in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus said, have you not read? That's always the problem. Have you read the scriptures? Regarding the different things that Jesus was talking about. Hosea 4, 6, God says, my people are destroyed for the lack of knowledge of the word of God. In Matthew 12, 24, Jesus answered and said to them, Are you not therefore mistaken because you do not know the scriptures? In this particular situation, he was speaking to the Sadducees and the the scribes. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They were ignorant of the scriptures. Thus, Jesus said, again, you're mistaken because you haven't read the word. Their theology was founded on error, and so will yours and mine be founded in error if we don't know the Scriptures. And when people come to you and they share something about the Lord or Scripture or some doctrine, if you don't know the Scripture, you're not going to know whether it's, it's true or false. The religious leaders based their faith on wrong thinking because they were ignorant of the knowledge of the Scriptures. Now, some of those uh, people did know enough scripture to know that Jesus fulfilled the claims of the Messiah. But like a lot of people from then to today, they chose not to believe in the word of God. As many don't believe in the word of God today. Jesus also fulfilled the word of God in his calling when it comes to the symbolism relating to his ministry. All of the sacrifices and all of the religious ceremonies that we see in the Old Testament that were commanded in the law, they all pointed to Jesus. They were all types or symbols or shadows of Jesus Christ about his redemptive work on the cross. Jesus fulfilled all the details of the religious ceremonial laws. Those were types and shadows. Jesus came and he is the substance. 
The symbols were the shadows. And this is especially clear in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. In a very special way, Jesus dying on the cross and taking our sins upon himself and our punishment, he has fulfilled all of the Old Testament types. All one has to do is go back and study Leviticus and Numbers and you'll see it for yourself. Study the burnt offerings. Study the sacrifices, the tabernacle, the altar and the labor of washing, the showbread, the high priest, the vessels. They all pointed to Jesus. They're all shadows and symbols and types. They're all prophecies of what is going to be done completely and finally by the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus has literally fulfilled and carried out and brought to pass every single one of those symbols and types and shadows. Jesus, by his death at Calvary and all that he's done, is the absolute fulfillment of all of these types and shadows. So Jesus' message and what he preached and what he taught was so different from what the scribes and the Pharisees taught, which was supposed to be based on the Old Testament scriptures. Now, because it was so different, what Jesus taught and what the scribes and the Pharisees taught, because it was so different, the people couldn't help but think that this was Jesus' own plan. That he came to undermine the authority of God's word and to replace it with his own. Because Jesus despised the traditions of the elders, the religious leaders thought Jesus was a deceiver and that he was going around to destroy the very foundations of godliness. Because, you see, Jesus was more concerned about the great moral principles than he was the ceremonies and the institutions and the ritual. And many of the people were ready to think that Jesus rejected the whole Levitical system, leading them to think, He's a false teacher. Let's look at verse 18 now. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till it is all fulfilled. In Jesus' words here in verse 18, he gives one of the strongest statements in the Bible for the inerrancy of Scripture. The infallibility of the word of God. God's word is absolutely trustworthy 100% from Genesis to Revelation and everything in between. Psalm 19 verses 7 through 11 says the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. His testimony, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous and altogether, they're altogether true and righteous. So the psalm says that the word of God is perfect, it's sure, it's right, it's pure, it's clean, it's true, it's righteous. That's why every decision that we make should be guided by God's word. And that God's word will endure forever. What Jesus says here in verse 18 is the same as he says, as God says in Isaiah 40, verse 8, that the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. In other words, it will never perish. God's word will never perish. Isaiah used the illustration of the rain and the snow. He said, the rain and the snow comes down from the heavens and it stays on the ground to water the earth. 
The rain and the snow causes the grain to grow, producing seed for the farmer and bread for the hungry. It's the same with my word, God says. I send it out and it always produces fruit. It will accomplish all I want it to and it will prosper everywhere that I send it. His word never comes back void. And to prove it, all you have to do is look at the history of God's word. Look at how God has preserved his word. No other book has been so criticized, so belittled, so insulted and lied about and attacked as much as the Bible. And guess what? It's still here. The French philosopher Voltaire intensely opposed Christianity. And Voltaire was bent on destroying Christianity and the Bible. Voltaire boasted that it took 12 men to start Christianity, but it would only take one, me, to end it. He said in less than 100 years, there wouldn't be any more copies of the Bible except in museums. But when that 100 years had passed, God's word was thriving. He was gone. In an auction, all of Voltaire's writings sold for a total of, of, of two measly dollars. In that same auction... A copy of the Bible was sold for a million dollars. This is the great part. Voltaire's house was later used by the Geneva Bible Society for storing copies of the Bible. <laughs> God, is, God has a, a, a sense of humor, I tell you. Man thinks he's so smart. And God says, talk on. We'll see who has the last word. So as always, Jesus was right. The word of God will endure forever. The word of God won't just endure forever, but every word of it will come to pass. Every prophecy and every promise will come to pass, even to the smallest detail, because that's the meaning where Jesus said there, every jot and every tittle will come to pass. The words jot and tittle refer to the smallest parts of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet, like the dotting of an I to the crossing of a T. They're the little markings above the letters that determine the exact meaning of some of the Hebrew words. The word of God will perfectly be carried out. Verse 19. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Those who go against God's word in their life show that they don't respect God's word. Even though they go to church and even though they seem to be a good member, disobedience of God's word shows they have disregard for the word of God. And we've seen it for quite some time now. We've seen the idea of doing your own thing. The idea of freedom today is doing whatever you want. No laws, no regulations, no rules. This was Israel's thinking during the time of the judges, where we read everyone did what was right in the sight of their own. Isn't that what they're doing today? Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. We see this added to today. It's the idea that says, you know what? If you want to be happy now, do whatever you want. Why wait? Do whatever you want. Do it now. It doesn't matter if there's no standards or there are standards. It doesn't matter if there are standards or consequences. 
Because, you see, we don't want anybody telling us what to do. And as the song goes, it's my life and I'll do what I want. I'll say what I want. I'll go where I want. But it doesn't matter. Because we don't want to answer to anybody. But there are consequences to this kind of thinking. You can, you can choose your choice, but you can't choose the results. You can't choose the consequences. You make your choice, and then it turns around, and it makes you. It will bring about the breakdown of the home. It will bring about the breakdown of the school. I mean, we see all this happening today. The church, our government, our society as a whole, without God's rules and standards and principles, it will break down. And we see it happening now when nobody wants to be accountable to anybody else. The only thing it will produce, this kind of thinking of of, of make yourself happy now, the only thing it will produce is lawlessness and chaos. And what do we have in our society today? Lawlessness and chaos. Even some in the church think like this. Because many, many congregations are hesitant or won't even discipline members who are clearly living immoral lives in the church. Or they're dishonest or they go contrary to the word of God. And the reason they're afraid to do anything is because they're afraid of offending somebody. Or they might lose financial support. Or they might be one of our biggest tithers. They might be afraid of being thought of as old-fashioned. Or legalistic. Or you're judging. Or you can't be so dogmatic. You know, there's gray areas in the Bible. Well, you're going to have to show them to me. Or there's the fear of stepping on somebody's supposed rights. So there's, there's this widespread failure to keep God's clear standards of righteousness, even in his own church. And we don't abide by God's word because... We're full of grace. God's, you got to be more gracious. You got to give grace. And this is true. The sad thing is, God's grace has become a dumping ground for sin. God's grace has become a license to sin. Oh, don't worry. God is gracious. God is love. God is forgiving. And all the other positive biblical teachings and standards. And it's true. But in the right context. When I'm sorrowful for my sin and I confess my sin and I seek God's sin, he'll forgive me and his grace will cover me and he'll go on to bless me with all the things that that he desires. And because grace has become a dumping ground for sin and a license to sin, people think, no problem. So they just wink at sin. And it's allowed to go on because nobody's perfect and God knows my heart and God has love and grace and all of those things. That doesn't sound like Paul's attitude. Paul said, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And he said, God forbid. Certainly not. Why? How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Don't confuse grace for carnal indulgence. In other words, go ahead. Grace has you covered. Because some Christians think they believe because God's grace covers every sin a believer ever commits, and he does. Well, you don't have to worry about living holy. This is the kind of thinking that caused so many problems in the early church. And this is the po- problem that Paul had to deal with in the Corinthian church. Thus, the two letters, First and Second Corinthians, he had to straighten them out. 
with their liberal theology. And not disciplining church members for their sin, their immorality. So judgment will come upon those who break the laws of God's word, who teach and teach others to do the same. That's what he's saying there in verse 19. Again, look at it. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments, that is whoever breaks God's word and teaches men so and teaches them the same thing, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But notice whoever does and then teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever does God's word and teaches people God's word the right way, they're the ones who will be called greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Both doing and teaching the word of God will result in the great praise in heaven. But notice here and mark it that Jesus placed doing before teaching. He who does and teaches it. Matthew 7, 24, Jesus said, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them. It wasn't the hearing part that Jesus emphasized, but he who does what I've told them, that what they've heard, then I will liken him to a wise man. John 13, 13, Jesus said, If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Where did the blessing come from? Not in the knowing these things, in the doing, what you know, in the doing of what you know. Luke eleven twenty eight. Jesus said, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. That is, do, that, those who do it, who obey it. So notice he said, those who hear these things, those who know these things, they're not the ones who are blessed. It's the one who does what they know and what they hear. James chapter 1, verse 22 through 25. James says this, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word of God and not a doer, he's like a man observing his, his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty, which is a, 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 a phrase for the word of God, and continues in it. Notice continues in the word of God and is not a forgetful here, but a doer of the work. This one will be blessed in what he does over and over again. You find the blessings of God come in what you do according to the word of God. Not what you know, not what you heard. Verse 20. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter into the kingdom of heaven. God's people were really messed up in their thinking here about how to be saved, which has always been and still is a common problem. People think there are so many ways to be saved, so many ways to get into heaven. Here they believed if you did good works, you'd get into heaven. And people think that today. They believe that if I do like the religious leaders do, if I live like them, I'll make it to heaven. If I follow their behavior, I'm going to heaven. They were the people's models of what it takes to get to heaven. But the religious leaders were hypocrites. (laughs) Jesus called them hypocrites. John had a lot of you brood of vipers, you snakes, you know, it, it went on and on. They were, they were big time sinners, the religious leaders of that day. But the people thought that they were the cream of the crop when it came to the model of purity and righteous living. 
Man, to hear Jesus say that they're hypocrites, can you imagine in front of these people? They must have went into shock. What? The scribes and the Pharisees? Hypocrites? You see, it's righteousness that's required to get into heaven. And a lot of it is needed. To the average Jew, it would take a huge amount of righteousness to exceed that of their religious leaders. You see, we know from other scriptures that the righteous, righteousness uh, that is needed is so great that no human being can provide it for himself or anybody else. It has to come from Jesus. The psalmist says in Psalm 49, 6 and 9, They trust in their wealth and boast of great riches, yet they cannot redeem themselves from death by paying a ransom to God. Redemption does not come so easily, for no one can ever pay enough to live forever and never see the grave. Notice, it, it doesn't come easy. And when you look at the cross, you can see how expensive and how difficult it was for redemption to come. Jesus paid the price and he paid a costly price because nobody else could pay the price of redemption for you and me. No church, no ritual, no ceremonies, no philosophy, no system can get you into the kingdom of God. None of those things can bring, bring, bring a person to God. Those who through a church or a cult or simply through their own personal standards try to work their way into God's grace knowing, knowing nothing of what God's grace is all about, they will find themselves at a dead end. And if they never find the way, they'll find themselves in hell. And it's really sad that a lot of people today, like the scribes and the Pharisees, and they'll try anyway to get into heaven but God's way, Jesus Christ. Oh, the, the, many will pay any price to get into the kingdom of heaven. But they won't accept the price that Jesus prayed on the cross. And they'll try to work their way into heaven and in every way that they can when Jesus has already done all the work that's needed to be done. On the cross, he said, it is finished, period. Not it is Jesus and, or it is finished and. No, it's, it's done. And, and people want everything that God can give them. They want everything that God can give them. We saw that with the crowds, the multitudes that would follow Jesus in the Gospels. They wanted everything except what he wanted to give them, which was most important, and that was the gift of salvation. These people, they might be religious. They might be good. They might be spiritual. But they're not born again. And unless one is born again. They will not see heaven. 
they will not get, they will, they'll not be brought to God. They'll not know God. And Jesus said, unless a man is born again, he will not get to heaven. He will not see heaven. So we need to understand what Jesus is saying here. We need to get right with him. We need to get right in the scriptures. And we need to get right in our holy living based on the principles of God's word. Father, we thank you for this great, great chapter, Lord. These great few verses, God. Lord, help us to get our view of you straight, our view of the scriptures straight. The right view of what it takes to get into the kingdom of God. And may the Holy Spirit lead us into that truth. May we humble ourselves, recognizing I'm not good enough on my own to get into heaven. I can't earn my way, pay my way, or anybody else do it for me into heaven. I can't. There's but one mediator between God and man, and that's the man, Christ Jesus. There's no salvation under any other name but the name Christ Jesus. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And we pray that God's word has spoken to you. And you got to understand that your, your righteousness or your preconceived righteousness is not based on your thinking. But it needs to be based on the truth of who truly is righteous. Who lived a sinless, perfect life, and that's Christ. And he's the only one good enough to bring us to the Father. The worship team's going to lead us in a song of worship right now. And this is decision time for you. If God has spoken to your heart and he's made it clear that he is the way and not the religious leaders who represent religion, man's way. If you want to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, as we worship, you get up out of your seat. You make your way down the aisle towards the steps up front. I'll meet you there. And when the song's over, we'll pray together. A simple prayer of faith.